You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. This is episode 80. I am your host, Trey Goodfellow, and with me is my regular panelist, one of my regular panelists, uh, freelance writer uh, and board game guru, Mr. Rob Zachney. How's it going, everybody? So you saw you're coming, you're talking in a tunnel. My tongue quality fell apart again? No, just that you're sounding far away, that's all. But you're clear. So I won't have to edit any of that out. I do want to apologize for any sound issues you may have heard on last week's podcast. Um, we were having some interference. It was a bit of a mess. So if some answers seem a little bit cut short or bizarre, it's because somebody started speaking Martian. Uh, I'm going to try to avoid that this week uh, with a smart, slightly new setup uh, until my new wireless card arrives, and hopefully that will help. This week is uh, <coughs> every 40 episodes... This is the rule. We do a question and answer session, and um, the questions came in pretty slowly until the last few days, and then all of a sudden I got deluged with questions from you, my great listeners and readers. Uh, so we have a bunch of these to get through. Um, we'll go through as many as we can. The form spring, not many of you put your name on them. Uh, some of you did. So if you read your question, I can't say who it's from on the form spring. But uh, we'll try to get through as many of these questions as we possibly can. Some of them are actually big enough they'd be good topics on their own, like for an entire show. Uh, but we'll uh, probably still try to answer some of them. Uh, so, y'all set? All right. Uh, in terms of historical games, this is from Reese Dewey, who I owe a mug because he was sent him, he bought a Flash of Steel mug and it broke. So I owe him a mug. Uh, Reese Dooley asks, in terms of historical games, uh, what era or eras do we find most interesting and why? And what separates the boring from the interesting? So, right, well, I'm going to recommend actually you answer these questions first because you have the advantage to be thinking about them a bit in the back of your mind and I'm, I'm taking them cold. Well, a lot, of the, I've, a lot of these questions I haven't read since they were first sent in. Um, so, well, let's see what goes. I mean, my favorite historical period is really not a, a mystery to anybody. I'm a huge ancient guy. I've been an ancient Rome nerd for a very, very long time. Um, all of my favorite pithy stories come from Plutarch, uh, and I use them as often as I can in reviews or dinner table speeches, because I'm that kind of a wrong, bad, and broken person. Uh, and why do I find the ancient world interesting? Probably because it is so small. Um, we're talking, we're not talking armies of hundreds of thousands of people most of the time. We're talking small armies, small tight-knit relations. It's impossible to be, empires are only really just discovering how to manage millions and millions of different people. Um, you have all the traditional stuff you get in the imperial period uh, in the 18th, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. How do you run a multi-ethnic empire? You have people struggling with that. You know, the issue of religion mixing things up for the most part. Uh, you'll find that for most of the ancient world, religion really wasn't that big a deal. Um, they were, as long as you paid, give, give your sacrifices to the gods, very few people cared about it. So you don't have that messing it up and uh, making things you know, kind of awkward for everybody. Uh, so that's what I find interesting. So they have this conflict between the small and the big. Uh, 
and uh, the ancient world's got the intimacy of the stabby stabby battles and you have outsized personalities who just discover how to do things brilliantly that nobody else had stumbled upon Alexander the Great kind of the Babe Ruth of the ancient world who has all of the same tools as everybody else only he clues in before anybody else does and how to use them um, so yeah the ancient world is my favorite and but as for boring I mean I I find, you know, much of the 20th century boring, uh, probably because, you know, I've lived it. Um, you know, the further away I go, the more mysterious things get, and I like I like sort of the mystery of going back that far. I also don't like the high Middle Ages. High Middle Ages is kind of dull, until you get the Reformation Renaissance, and things start to get really fun again. But high Middle Ages, who cares? What about you, Rob? Well, I think um, my tastes are similar. I'm, I have a predilection for any era where um, you've got changes in. Doesn't even necessarily have to be technology, but like um, technology is changing, or the way armies are raised and managed are changing. And I, I really find it fascinating when you're seeing one era of warfare giving way to another. Um, so, so I'm really, I'm really interested in these um, transitional. Period. So, like, um, I'm a I'm a huge fan of. Um, I, I love the Renaissance um, heading into the Enlightenment. Uh, when you when you've got when medieval style armies are still present on the battlefield, but they're slowly and grudgingly giving giving way to gunpowder armies, and nobody really knows how to. You know, nobody knows how to effectively manage gunpowder troops yet. Um, it's still very much. You know, um, technology in the process of being understood. Um, so I, I find that a really, a really interesting period. Um, and then the same goes for, you know, the the 18th, early 19th centuries. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Frederick the Great uh, nerd, and increasingly, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Napoleon because, again, um, you've got you know, with, with Frederick the Great, you've got you've got like that's the absolute height of the of the absolute monarchy, uh, where you've got this great soldier king um, leading, you know, an army against his enemies personally. But just in the space of a generation, that's no longer going to be sufficient. You can't just have um, a large body of troops and be rolling over your enemies with one army. You need to be you need to be thinking broader. And you know, like Alexander the Great, Napoleon's one of the first guys to tumble to the fact. That you you know an ar- an army big enough to win a battle a major battle is too large to be supported across the countryside so he he develops you know the core system um, and I, I just find it fascinating to see how the army becomes this, you know how the, basically to see the modern army um, come into come into focus there great um, I'm starting to lose you a bit Rob by the way just so you know okay. Um, it's not so bad, but I can see it going to be a problem eventually. I've got my recording. Okay. Uh, from Mike Helmecki, is losing fun? What single-player games make defeat palatable, even joyous? Is, consider the arcade aesthetic. Is it okay to lose like that? Is a palatable loss inherently tied to replayability? Can a long strategy game be fun to lose? I've lost a space race in Civ 4 by a single turn and enjoyed it, but I've been slaughtered by Megastacks in two hours in and hated it. 
So, Rob, for you, where's losing fit in in uh, enjoying a game? Um, well, I think it was right there in the question. Um, a long strategy game, can can losing be fun in a really long strategy game? Um, I think almost certainly not. Uh, I mean, I am very hard-pressed to think of long time investment uh, strategy games that are fun to lose. And the issue is right there. Um, if I'm If I've just put in you know, 20 or 30 hours on some sort of major campaign. You know, I, I'm just going to have a very hard time enjoying myself if it turns out I lose. But I think I, I think the bigger issue is, um, you know, is, is losing go- is going to be a near-run thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it's not. We, you know, we, we've talked about the problem before of the runaway victory. Usually losing sucks because you know well in advance of when they finally shut the coffin. Um you know you're you know you're not going to win, and mm-hmm. so you're just kind of marking time, and you're sort of dying by a thousand cuts. Um, so I think I think in the in a long strategy game, it's, it's very hard uh, to have a rewarding loss. Um, but I think it, for short for short duration games, it's it's much easier to have um, you know have a good lose. So as I mean, it's interesting you say that, Rob, because I'm just going to ask you a question. You're a big Europa Universalis guy. I mean, you yeah. love your, you love EU3. You talk, you write about that game a lot. You've written some really great, insightful essays about it. When do you restart an EU3 game? Because clearly, because often you have, you can start a game as France or as Muscovy or as China or as Korea, and you find you end up losing or get in a very bad situation pretty quick. When do you restart? When you first lose a war? When you try to recover from that war and fail to? Or do you play? Or do you always play with the string? Oh, uh, you just you just you just uh, honed in on weakness of my answer. Um, but a game like EU three, um, it taught me not to quit um, because EU three is really unpredictable, and so I think things that in other strategy games would be cause for a rage quit. Uh, in EU3, I'm much more likely to say, you know, hang on, I think we might be able to get out of this. Uh, so I almost, I almost never quit. The, the only thing that's likely to make me quit on a game of EU3, um, I reserve the right to call bullshit. Um, you know, if, if the AI is clearly piling on and... Uh, you know, not for real clear reasons. This is this is this happened to me in Victoria too, as well, um, where I'm not even a clear threat to the rest of the world. Yet the rest of the world is descending on me like rabid wolves, even though I'm not even easy pickings. Um, you know, that just gets annoying. Like fighting wars on every side, that just that gets tedious. So that's when I'll quit um, when I'm just being harassed to death. But you know, EU3 is very good at. at um, you know, there's a small window for hope, right? Right. Yeah, you can always hope that, uh, as I love playing as one of the Russian principalities mm-hmm. in the EU3. I like playing as Muscovy or as Novgorod uh, or as Ryazan. And, you know, trying to create Russia out of it. And it's not always very easy uh, because there's that huge Tartar threat to the south that can either self-destruct... Or run mad through Europe, just go completely nuts. Yeah. 
Um, so a lot of it, the game is waiting for that to happen and seeing, can you separate the Poles from the Lithuanians? And what are the Swedes going to do? There's a really nice balance of power feeling right from the very beginning of the game. Yeah. Um, and I've come very close to have being eliminated as Muscovy and then coming back to be the arbiter of Europe. I mean, very rarely do I come back to actually win the game, uh, but big enough that I can throw my weight around um, after a bad start. And, but, I mean, I also, playing as, you know, France, I will restart a game as France if Burgundy just decides to be a bitch uh, and start killing everything, because it's really hard to re- for France to recover with a strong Burgundy, a strong Spain, and a strong England. In that case, you're really just sitting around waiting, waiting for the clock to run out. Um, so, a lot depends on the situation. Yeah, that is the AI just... It's a, you, you can come back from some losses, and some losses can be fun. Um, and I'm not sure how much it has to do with how long uh, the game is. I'm not sure. I mean, a short game, yeah, I mean, losses are palatable because they happen quickly. But it's not a loss you know is coming. Um, I've had lots of cheap losses in, in short war games, for example. Uh, things that I thought were just screwy. You throw a, a bad roll of the dice, but you can take it because you can just play another one. Uh, you can play another um, Field of Glory battle in 10 minutes, because, okay, you had a really bad roll of the dice, and all of your phalanxes got routed by slaves. Bad idea, it happens if the dice don't cooperate, but you can start over again. Uh, but really for long strategy games, the games that most of our players, or most of our listeners are interested in, um, or even RTSs, uh, that can go on. Uh, I mean, a short RTS, to lose a short RTS is not a big deal. I've lost thousands of short RTS uh, matches. Uh, they really don't bother me. Um, and it's really an interesting question. Um, if I get better, then it's good. If I learn something, if I learn something from the loss, that's great. Or if it's a thrilling loss. Or if it's a loss that allows me to recover, then it's a good thing. If it's a loss that feels random or cheap, then yeah, then, then that bothers me. Um, and uh, the questioner mentioned the whole mega stack thing in Civ 4. Yeah, if, if Montezuma shows up outside my capital city with 50 units that I cannot afford, uh, don't know where he's getting all the gold because he lives in a freaking jungle, but for some reason, because of the AI bonuses, he can support these huge armies. Um, yeah, that always feels cheap to me. Uh, that's why when Civ 5 comes out, the first thing I'm going to do is drop a nuclear bomb on Montezuma's head because that's the tradition. In this house, we kill Montezuma first. Well, that's, you know, I mean, both of us brought up uh, th- this concept of cheapness in, yep. in a loss. Um, so I'm curious, like, can we, can we expand on that a little bit? Like, yeah. Like, where, where does... Where's the line? Yeah, where does being outfoxed cross the line into being just crap? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's one of those, you know, when you see it or when you feel it type things, I guess. Um, if it's, I think the AI is always picking on me. Like you mentioned, the AI is just ganging up on you. That can sometimes feel cheap. Of course, it can also feel great. If if it's a, if the mechanic works to be a a real balance of power and they're afraid of you, uh, like imperialism had that. When everyone ganged up on me in imperialism, it never felt cheap because I always deserved it. I knew, I knew that they were coming after me because I was, you know, poking my nose in their sphere of influence and they were not liking that. Uh, so I never felt cheap when they ganged up on me and beat me. Uh, but in Civilization, you know, which is still my favorite strategy game of all time, 
you know, little things like uh, the Zulus popping up with a thousand units going off galleons, uh, that can sometimes feel pretty cheap. Um, or when your co-religionist declares war on you for no reason whatsoever, uh, that can sometimes feel cheap. Um, and it's that's how it feels. I'm not going to say it actually is cheap. We have to ad- admit that you know these are about our impressions, what we're thinking when we're playing games. We like to think that we strategy gamers are above emotion. Uh, but I get really, really upset sometimes uh, when I'm well, I get annoyed. I get verklempt uh, when the game does not go the way it's supposed to go. Um, so cheap is how I feel. I'm not sure how I would define it necessarily. How about you? Well, I mean, I mean that's it exactly. And I, I'm thinking back to um, you know the talk that uh, Sid Meier gave at GDC yep. um, about how players perceive uh, malign intent all the time <coughs> in random systems. Yep. Um, so I mean, it's it's something. I mean, honestly, I think you know the first the first answer to that is I think as strategy gamers, you, you've, we've really got to be better sports. Uh, we've <laughs> got to be better sports. Yeah. Um, because you know, having stuck out a lot of tough games, because after that talk, um, that's when I was really getting in the EU three, and it started making me uh, stick out a lot of a lot of tough games that I otherwise wouldn't have, and I've had much better more satisfying strategy experiences since then. Right. Uh, but that said, I'm still susceptible to that feeling of, you know, you're watching, you're watching, you're playing a game, and you have a sense for, for what makes sense and what doesn't. And when it crosses a line where, um, again, in, in Victoria 2, when everyone just descended on Prussia, and I was just sending, you know, tens of thousands of troops home in body bags, like, I was not going down, nor had I ever expanded. I could not for the life of me fathom why AI nations that had decent relations with me were just deciding, well, Russia's got to be destroyed. That really seemed screwy. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think, I, I, I think um, you know, you, you got to watch out for, for that sense of being ganged up on. The other thing, though, is uh, I, think, I think strategy gamers, war gamers... Maybe have a tendency to uh, bite off more than they can chew. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of what you're t- saying about like Civ, you know, Montezuma showing up with way too many troops due to AI bonuses. You know, I'm kind of thinking like, you know, have you gotten accustomed to just playing on a difficulty level that's just too, a little too weighted? You know, toward yeah. uh, the AI. Yep. You know, is the solution there? You just because with Civ, I run into a problem where I le- I play these elaborately constructed games where I don't want anything to ever go wrong. Um, and if something does go wrong, I don't have enough. The AI is too unforgiving. The right. Is too unforgiving. Um, and I think the solution there is you, you're you're not playing a good strategy game. Then you've created you've created something that's just too difficult to be to be played and to allow the system to operate as it's intended. Great. Uh, next question is from Jared Hines. Uh, he's had a couple of emails. Uh, most of the questions are more this would be a great topic type stuff, things I'm going to be putting aside, uh, some great, great issues of topics that I do want to raise, and some are directed at very specific people, Tom or Bruce, and they're not here. Uh, I will send them the questions, maybe, and we can get an answer from them. But the question from Jared I want to, I'll answer is, there are a great many tycoon games. Roller Coaster Tycoon, Prison Tycoon, Coffee Tycoon, Plant Mall, Mall of America, Game, Freight, Zoo, School, Railroad, Lemonade, Caterpillar Construction, and Vegas, to name some. 
and that isn't counting sequels and expansions. Most people don't seem to be aware of how many there are, yet they must sell well if there are so many attempts to cash in on the tycoon name. Do we have any idea why that would be the case? Uh, value. The value market. Yeah, that's what um, it comes down to. You go, you go to Walmart, Target, Best Buy. Um, you go into the PC section and you pass up the box, you know, the box games, and you walk into the value CD section, and that's where these things are ending up. Ending up. That's the graveyard. Yeah. Um, and they're totally thriving on impulse purchases from. I, mean, I don't know. I assume people are. Some people are probably in financial straits or don't have really good computers. Um, the, the other thing, though, is that there's a lot of. I guess you call them casual gamers, where they, they will seriously look at box, um, or the few screenshots that are on the back of the game, and they'll think, hey, that sounds cool. I mean, you know, for years, my dad was one of these gamers, um, where he took chances on stuff because it sounded like a nifty concept. And, the, you know, you know, guys like you and me, I mean, we care about who developed it. You know? Like, yep. How does this game work? Uh, but there's a lot of people who don't follow the strategy closely enough to know that stuff or care. So if something, you know, if the idea of managing a prison sounds cool, you know, hey, I just watched a lot of Oz, let's manage a prison. Um, you know, they might walk out of there with that, and it only costs them 10 bucks. Yeah, your voice is really falling apart, Rob. So it's not just, it's not just my wireless card. Because okay. the netbooks has no other problems at all. So it's not just not just uh, FYI. So you're going in and out. So there might be some editing happening to your voice. All right. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean it's a value market, and I mean these games are not expensive to make for the most part. Uh, they don't spend a lot of money on UI. They don't spend a lot of money on art for the most case. Uh, they probably even might spend more money on, on music than they would anything else. Getting original music written for the background, though even that is on a repetitive loop. Uh, and they're successful because Roller Coaster Tycoon. Roller Coaster Tycoon came out as a relatively low-priced title, and was a great game. Uh, a legitimately good, uh, interesting, challenging game that almost everybody could play. That was bundled with some computer packs, so everyone was a, familiar, a lot of were familiar with it. Um, so it, you know, it sets this market, this idea that you can make a game about anything and about managing anything, like a prison or a hospital or Vegas. I wonder what Vegas Tycoon even is. Um, so that's, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Is that it's a budget market, and there was a good leading thing. I mean, Roller Coaster Tycoon. I mean, Railroad Tycoon goes way, way back, but you know, Roller Coaster Tycoon came out much later, and that's really the beginning of the tycoon game getting to be a genre unto itself. Right? That's a Roller Coaster Tycoon. People start talking about tycoon games, and they all have pretty much the same idea. You start with something very simple, and you're working your way up to a more complicated business situation. Um, some of these have you know legitimately good gameplay in them. Many of them are just the same mechanics over and over again. They're uh, kind of the social games of the single-player market, I would suppose. Repetitive mechanics, uh, just changing the veneer. Um, and they're cheap to make, and yeah, they're, they're generally sell for, what, 20 bucks? Oh, less. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and one thing, you know, I think that, that this market demonstrates, though, um, you know, a few weeks ago, Julian and I were talking about you know, the, the strategy syllabus, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that came up is how thematically limited um, strategy games are. Um, you know, they're all, they're all very conflict-based. Mm -hmm. And, 
the tycoon genre um, is, you know, really dedicated to satisfying people's desire to build and manage something. Yeah. Um, and by having so many good developers focused on on creating games about empires and conflict and war, um, they really see the positive accomplishment genre uh, to you know to to the bargain men. Uh, yeah. to, to value, value developers. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's an accident you, you brought up um, Facebook games because I think the success of the tycoon genre um, sort of, you know, it, 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 highlighted the, it highlighted that there was this market that was not being served and it was just waiting for the right format and it found it in Facebook. Yep. So that's... Uh, uh, Jared asks uh, if we'll ever do an episode on turn-based strategy RPGs from Japan. I would love to. Uh, I need to play some Fire Emblem Valkyria Chronicles, but would love to do that. Is the Decade series the Duke Nukem of Flash and of Steel? It's a terrible thing to ask, but maybe. Okay, we need to talk about that, yeah. Uh, why would gas-powered games port something as complex as Supreme Commander to consoles, but not Demigod? Um... Who published Supreme Commander? Square Enix. Um, yeah. Right. Publishers care about what platforms the game's going to be available on. Yeah. And by all accounts, publishers are also pretty damn stupid about this sort of thing. Yeah. So to get... So I would I would wager that to get Supreme Commander made and published, they had to say, oh, it's not just a PC game. Mm-hmm. It's also for the 360. And some bean counter at the publishers like, hey, the 360, the kids like that, right? And so you end up with this complete mismatch of design and the capabilities of a system yeah. um, and a control scheme. Have you played Supreme Commander 2 on 360? You just got your 360, so of course you haven't. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I mean, is it worth it for me to try? Like, I've never I don't know. I, even, I, I played the first Supreme Commander on my 360, and it was a disaster. Uh, the second Supreme Commander 2, I have not. Uh, I know they walked in with the plan to make Supreme Commander 2 more console-friendly. Uh, Supreme Commander 2 is a great game, a much better game than the first Supreme Commander, in my opinion. Uh, certainly more user-friendly. I'm not sure it's more console-friendly, necessarily. But it's certainly something to worth trying. But yeah, you're right. It, it comes down to the power. Square Enix is a console publisher. I mean, that's what they do. Um, they don't do a lot of PC game publishing. And it's, but, you know... Gaspard Games signed on with them, so they had to do a 360 game. Uh, but they're a PC gaming company for the most part, or have been for most of their history. Uh, so, so that's where they started. It comes down to the publisher um, and whether the and whether the developer can win that fight. Uh, and Gaspard Games needed Supreme Commander 2 to get published, and to get published, to get hit published, they needed to pretty much cut cut a good deal. And part of the deal, I'm sure, was you have to do a console version of this. They found a way to do it. Uh, I hope that it was a good port, or at least a better port than mo- most other RTSs. Um, I don't have high hopes for it, but um, it's, I mean, it's sort of the publisher's decision. Now, Kings and Castles, which is the next gas-powered games uh, game, is that only PC? Oh, man. Uh, dude, all I know about that game is that hallucinogenic video that was released when it was announced. Yeah. Um, so I really can't talk about Kings and Castles. Yeah, hallucinogenic. That's a good way. That's uh, usually referred to the video series done by uh, Gas Powered Games boss man Chris Taylor, which is 
they're they're an interesting bunch of videos. Him walking around his farm. Uh, Chris is a, one of the great characters in game design. It makes everything very interesting, and I am looking forward to Kings and Castles for sure. Uh, from Mind Elemental, uh, that's his nom de plume. Uh, uh, historical dynamism. In real life, empires, religions, and cultures rise and fall, whether to imperial overstretch, financial crises, being overwhelmed. In the classic 4X paradigm, winners get bigger and bigger and bigger across the eons. This ties into the podcast we did about snowballing victories. On the other hand, in real life, it is also possible for civilizations to get going relatively late in life, or to bounce back from weak positions. How would you model this mechanic into an abstract 4X game? Not tied to a specific period necessarily, like the paradox, but what mechanics could you use to keep this sort of thing up? Is this question in basic ways? You may refer to uh, the rise and fall mod for Civ 4, but it's very deterministic. You're asking out of a theoretical game design question. How could you model falls and cycles of history? Well, you, so we, okay. First, we need to start with, I think, the core problem, mm-hmm. um, which is that if you study history, you know, somebody always ends up in charge who shouldn't be. It's just, it's going to happen. Um, And so the reason so many empires fall is, you know, you just get, you know, there's some bad luck on your side where you've got the wrong leader in place and the other guys have the right leader. Um, There's a lot of factors where empires face, like, new challenges um, that they can't adapt to and they can't confront. With Forex games... I mean, there's simply, like, no empire in history has ever had um, a guiding consciousness, you know, taking it through history and always right. having, like, you know, making plans 300 years in advance. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it creates a huge problem. What I think a lot of Forex games don't do, and I think this is the easiest sort of band-aid slap on the problem, is start throwing seriously debilitating... Um, you know, problems at the player. In EU3, there are simply not enough bad rulers, bad cabinet ministers turning up um, in the mid to late game. Um, and, there's, and there's never any incentive to not reform. There's never any incentive for, really, for Poland to stay decentralized, or any incentive for China not to stay really centralized and to keep all this power in the hands of a decaying court. Um, This is one of the problems with game mechanics in general, is they want you to choose an optimal path. Uh, systems are about, you want to learn the optimal path and find the quickest way to win. And 4X games are really about finding a system and mastering it. Um, and you're not really mastering history, and they're not trying to model history. They're trying to make it so... Because when I play uh, Civilization, I'm not Rome, I'm Troy, King of the Romans. Uh, so I'm not going to have cycles of civil war uh, like Rome had, because I'm the emperor. Who's going to overthrow me? Um, yeah, the whole the guided consciousness is kind of the thing. You can you know what's coming? And even if you did model in those mechanics of cycle of rise and fall, the player could always see them coming and plan against them, which would mitigate their effects um, somewhat. I mean, it'd be, it's something that we strategy gamers would love to have the idea of, wow, I'm I'm really playing a, a culture that's rising and falling, but falling isn't very fun. I think of you know the Civ three 
uh, so when they introduced golden ages into Civilization Three, the original idea was they weren't going to be golden ages; they're going to be dark ages, where your civilization goes through a period of slowdown. But they that's no fun. It's more fun to have, you know, the idea that not that your civilization is decaying and slowing down, but that it is getting bigger and brighter. So instead of using, you know, the Dark Ages as the model, use the Elizabethan Golden Age or the Renaissance as the design model. It's a reward for being successful. It's not a penalty because you've gotten so big. Um, you want to have the, you want to give people incentive to move forward, and that's um, really the way it should be, I think. Um, I think we as strategy gamers often get so wrapped up in, well, this should be like history. Uh, let's realize what the effect would be on the gamer. And I know that, I mean, it's, I don't, we just, I mean, I don't mind losing a lot. But if I know the loss is coming and I can plan around it, I will plan around it. Um, because I want to win. Well, I think, you know, I mean, like falling is, isn't fun. Um, but retrenching is. Yes. Um, I will. You now, this is an odd game to bring up in this context, but um, medieval Total War One. Um, periodically, the way I remember it is, you have waves of revolt throughout your kingdom for no real good reason, but it just it, like suddenly you were fighting rebels everywhere. You had to put tax revenues down to the floor, um, and so suddenly you go from having this huge booming empire to being out of money. Um, huge portions of your empire disrupted, and the enemy would be, you know, coming coming at your borders. Um, and I always had a lot of fun, sort of figuring out what was salvageable in mm-hmm. these situations. And I think it it's really a question of turning these negatives into positive opportunities for you know exciting choices. Um, so it's not, yeah, it's not fun to just watch your empire fall apart. Uh, but it is fun to suddenly have your empire put in serious jeopardy, and it's impossible to hold on to everything you've gained. You right. have to make hard choices about what the next phase of this next phase of the game. What are your bases going to be? What's valuable for the next phase, and what can you afford to lose to retake later down the road? Right. And that's something that's missing in a lot of games. Um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's an insoluble problem. And I, again, like you know, just to bring up Victoria Two here, um, I really liked how there were a lot of um, you know events that left you with kicking the can further down the road situations. Um, right. The American campaign is a great example of this. The Civil War is coming, um, and you, know, you spend a lot of trying to trying to head it off. But at some point, you have got to be thinking these people are going to succeed. So where do I want to be when that happens? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things Robo Universalis 2, um, where it had historical events. So the Russians knew the time of troubles would be coming. So you could prepare for the time of troubles. How do you deal with the fact you're going to have five crappy rulers in a row? Uh, you're going to have revolts constantly. You need to keep your army together because you don't know who's going to take advantage of that. Um but you know it's coming, so you have to actually think so many years ahead because you're not really playing history as much as uh, resisting it, uh, surviving it, um, which I think is an interesting way to do it. But I, as far as you know, the mind elemental asks, you know, the idea of 
of a, just a, as a general mechanic in a general game without historical specificity. And I think you just you do just end up running into the challenge of how do you keep the player uh, from bolting, from not from not wanting to be the country that's always on the rise. Um, I have one and, concrete idea. Pardon? I have one concrete idea. Okay. Well, what we're talking about with, like, in EU3, where you don't have a, an incentive to centralize, um, where you, the, the, the correct choice is always the correct choice. You know, there's, there's, the negatives don't, aren't serious enough the way they would be historically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to take one example, um, every time your economy has to undergo a major transition, you should receive major penalties for how deeply invested you are in the previous form of the economy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's time to industrialize. You get massive unrest penalties or disorder penalties for every single major plantation you have. Um, if you're entering the Enlightenment, you know those those cathedrals you built or something should be a source of unrest and discontentment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the previous era's strengths. You know, I mean, that's really what, cho- what trips up empires, right? Is that there? You know, the past must give way to the future, but it doesn't go quietly. Yeah, I mean, that'd be you know the interesting way. I mean, we kind of talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. The idea that um, if there was a way to have different factions and have politics properly modeled, so that somebody's always a loser and the loser is always going to complain. Um, because, I mean, like you said at the beginning of this question, you know, it's about, you know, rulers making bad decisions or listening to bad advice. That's pretty much where we're at. Uh, next question is from Clay Carroll, who asks, uh, what are our thoughts on Age of Empires Online? Uh, Tom and I have both posted, posted separately about it, uh, so, but what do anyone else on the panel have to say about plans for Age of Empires Online? This is Robot Entertainment's newly inter- Announced MMO RTS uh, published uh, by Microsoft. These are former Ensemble people. Uh, have you been reading much about Age of Empires Online, Rob? No. Do you have any thoughts on Age of Empires Online? Um, not terribly enthusiastic ones. <laughs> Why not? Um. Well, I mean, I will be. On, I am skeptical of the entire MMO RTS concept. Okay. Um, I, that, I mean, that's simply not why I play RTSs. Um, so it's kind of like you've got vermouth in my peanut butter. Um, you know, it's, I don't like. I don't really see how these two things fit together. Um, yeah, so it's it just it's it's not it's not something that's designed to appeal to me. Uh, but I mean, how how are they doing this? I mean, what what is what is the theory behind an MMO RTS, Troy? Um, what is the theory of the MMORTS? Yeah, like, wh- why is that better than an RTS? Like, why why not Age of Empires 4? Why Age of Empires MMO? Um, the money. <laughs> uh, the money. It's, uh, I expect to think that this is a way to, uh, sell more services, to get subscriptions, to sell micropayments. It's, it's going to be cheaper to make. Uh, than an RTS, I'm sure they're full RTS. Yeah. I mean, I, it's because they only because that's launching with a single race, okay. with few units. Uh, it won't go too much of balancing. People have to 
pay to contribute to it. Uh, they're going to promote the social. Um, it's the artwork. I mean, artwork, of course, is it looks good. It doesn't look realistic, but it looks good because it's you know it's very stylized, which is great. Um, I'm sure this is going to cost less than Age of Empires three did. Probably going to cost less. Certainly going to cost less than StarCraft two did. Um, and we'll have a reliable revenue stream. Uh, so that's the plan, at least. That's why they're doing this instead of another Age of Empires. I think if Microsoft wanted another Age of Empires, they would be making another Age of Empires. Uh, what they want is another Age of Empires online, a way that they can keep these people making, using these skills, testing this online market for, you know, it's not going to be a huge MMO. It's, uh, but it's something that they think has a market. Uh, and they're going to, it's the Age of Empires name, so that means something. Um, I think they're great to have. Um, this is Robot from from the Ensemble place. This is uh, Goodman's uh, group. Uh, he's the one who ended up there. Um, Tony Goodman. He's the CEO and boss there. Great guy. Interviewed him once uh, for an article. Uh, fascinating. Some really good people and certainly friends of Flash of Steel uh, work there. And uh, it's... I mean, that's why they're doing this instead of a full RTS. They're doing it because they think this is the, this is the wave of the future. This is, crosses that line between, uh, social gaming and true MMO gaming. This isn't some Travian or Acarium game where you just log on and log off. There are quests. There are actual battles. You move things around. There is cooperation. There's actual building. There are settlers who move things around. I'm not quite sure how it works or how it looks. There's some gameplay video up there, uh, so you can take a look at what's going on now, but who knows how representative it is. It, I'm not going to say it's a game I'm really excited about. I'm really not a MMO online person, uh, for the most part. I like my multiplayer strategy experiences kind of confined, uh, mostly to friends. But there's so much talent here at this studio that I, and I love the Age of Empires series. I always have from the very beginning. Uh, it is... Um, it's a game I'm looking forward to. Looking forward to seeing and reading about. It is um, probably not uh, something you'll be playing, Rob. Uh, but I, I, I do want to follow how it works. Because I think this could be the model for uh, mid-sized development houses to keep the RTS going. Because to compete with StarCraft... Uh, is gonna be breaking these people. But this is a type, this is the type of multiplayer gaming that I think could have some strategic, uh, value. Um, maybe not. I could be just way too optimistic because I wish these guys the best. I really liked, I really like the ensemble people. I want them to kick a, to kick ass wherever they end up. Um, and I can't believe the name Robot Entertainment wasn't already taken, so they're lucky to have that, and that's a great name. But this is properly, like, I mean, there's I, I, enough ensemble continuity here that you feel this is... There is a lot of ensemble continuity here. Uh, it's, like it's mostly ensemble at this point. Uh, well, then that, I mean, that significantly increases my interest, but, you know, even, like, as you described it, I, I have, I have a suspicion of any, of any product that sounds like it started from the publisher's needs first. Yep, and then it was. Then they tried to figure out a way to adapt it to the existing audience, and that seems very uh, cart before the horse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure you can make it work, but I, I have no doubts. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, publishers always come first uh, before developers, uh, but I'm sure that uh, they wouldn't be making this if they didn't think they had a plan. 
that he didn't think they could do it. Um, and I, I'm glad we're going back to the Age of Empires name, and it's not a Halo Wars. It's not Halo Wars Online or something. Well, this this does anybody know? Do you? I mean, anybody? It's just you and me. Uh, yeah. But you out in the gallery too. Um, Battlefield Heroes. Uh, did that? Is that a going concern? Has that turned into a success story? That's a good question. I have no idea. Uh, anybody who knows about Battlefield Heroes, please let me know. That sounds like a. That's. Why don't you explain to our listeners what that is if they don't aren't familiar with it? Well, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a similar situation, right? You've got the Battlefield games, which is these, like, team-based tactical shooters. Uh, Battlefield 1942, World War II shooter, Battlefield Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then EA wanted something a little more broadly appealing and a little something that uh, could really be a success with the microtransaction model. So they made Battlefield Heroes, um, which is sort of this... Um, it's a vaguely Team Fortress 2-ish art style, but it's it's a Battlefield light type game Um, and I mean honestly the reports I heard from people playing it at launch were not really favorable Um, Mm -hmm. and EA I know had to drastically revise the pricing structure Um, and that's really kind of where it dropped off my radar and I stopped hearing about it then Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure where it stands now but it does strike me as a similar effort to take an existing you know core gamer type game and bring it to the you know, bring it to the browser. Um, you know, br- bring it to a wider online audience, and you know, finance it through microtransactions. Okay, uh, let's go to the form spring questions here uh, from Roland Martinez. Uh, what do you think games journalism will look like in ten years? Hopefully, I will be doing something more lucrative. Um, I don't know. I'm, what will games journalism look like in ten years? Jeff I'm just enjoying this funereal silence. <laughs> Jeff Green will still be doing it. Uh, I I hope. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it'll, I think it's moving to video. I think games journalism in ten years will be mostly video. That we're go- they're going to find a finally somebody's going to find a way to do good game reviews, good game coverage, uh, in a video way. You know, some people point to Giant Bomb and how they do it, or to G4 and how they do it. And that's okay. Uh, I think it's still very traditional. Uh, I think it's still, you know, certainly toying with how far we can go with video and video games journalism. I have some friends over at G4, and they do some great, they do some amazing stuff, uh, especially X-Play. Um, but I think there's a way, to, I think we're going to see more of that, and we're going to see a lot more criticism, and I think we'll see a lot, I think we might actually have people videotaping interviews. Isn't it weird that games journalism interviews are almost all print and very rarely filmed? Doesn't that strike anybody else as just bizarre? Yeah, that's, that's pretty weird. Now, if you're going to read, if I was going to interview Ken Levine, you're more likely to see it in print than me sitting down with Ken Levine across a, a table, when you don't see it in any other entertainment journalism. Or, I mean, Charlie Rose sits down and talks to directors. Entertainment Tonight talks to actors. It's all on film. But games journalism, we still do all of this stuff. Uh, it's typed up and it's put in a blog. Uh, games journalism is moving very, very fast. I remember three years ago, the live blog was the big thing. No one live blogs anymore. They it's live, all live tweets. It's all live tweets, and that's already played out. Who, who pays attention to any of that anymore? It's just too rapid and too many times. If I have... If I'm, I'm following with 200 people on Twitter, if 40 of them are tweeting the same press conference, you think I'm following my Twitter? Of course not. 
It's just all spam. I, I ignore it until the conference is over. Then I go and I read about it later. Um, I think we're, it, it's going to move to video, and it's kind of a shame because I have a face for radio. Uh, I really don't have the... I want to do some video stuff, and I'm working on some experimental stuff in that direction. But it's that's what game journalism is going to look like. Um, it, it's, I think game journalism is still pretty good. Uh, people are down on it. I think it's actually... It's better than it's ever been <laughs> because there's more variety. There's more of it. It's certainly it's also worse than it's ever been. It's both better and worse than it's ever been. How's that? That sound accurate? It does. Um, you know, I think. You know, oddly enough, I was I was at this conference um, over the weekend, the Boston Game Loop. Um, very very cool event. It's an unconference. Um, set the agenda in the morning, and then you. Uh, you, you attend sessions um, after, you know, based on how people mm-hmm. vote and what they decide sounds interesting. Um, and I was in Chris Dolan's uh, games journalism um, panel, and it was it was an interesting discussion, and it was this this mixture of optimism and black depression. <laughs> um, you know, and and one issue I think, you know, one one serious issue is that. Um, you know, there, there, there really are just too many people willing to do the job for free. Yep. Um, and I mean, there, there's one person in this panel who was complaining about, uh, you know, the the twenty, thirty hours she puts in on her site per week. Um, you know, on top of being a grad student somewhere, uh, and she's not she's not paid for any of it. She edits the site, she writes for it. Um, you know, she's a major contributor to the site. She doesn't get paid for any of it. And, I mean, that, that to me just sounds... There, there are too many people who are totally willing to be taken advantage of in yeah. that way. Um, and so, I mean, it makes it really hard. You know, first of all, it makes it hard for those people because, you know, bad news for most of you, you know, your break is never coming. Yeah. Um, nobody's ever going to pay you. Um, if they were going to pay you, they'd probably started by now. Um, and they're certainly never going to pay you unless you put a gun to their head and say, pay me or I walk. Um, but you have too many people who just, you know, as long as they get a little bit of access, they'll, they'll continue doing it. Um, but at, at the same time, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, in, in a lot of ways, it, it never has been better. Um, a lot of cream has risen to the top. Um, and you've got, there's some great, there's some great places for games journalism right now. I mean, you know, Rock, Paper, Shotgun didn't exist five years ago. Um, and, I mean, you know, it's one of the sites that's an embarrassment of riches from a writing talent perspective. Yep. Um, and there's there's a lot of sites like that. Um, if I can just toss one last thing out there. Yep. Um, one thing I really lament about, you know, the emphasis on blogs and bloggers is that, you know, frankly, I think it's it's simply too difficult for one person to generate that much interesting content um, on a regular basis. And, I mean, I know you analyze traffic the same way I do, Troy. Like, if, if you don't keep generating steady content, audience drops. You know, yeah, and and, and, this, and this has been a bad month for Flash of Steel. This will be like three posts in a row that are all podcast. Right. Uh, because, you know, it, I have work to do uh, that actually pays money. And yeah, it is. You're, you're right. Go ahead. Well, but I think we're running a problem with that is, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion of the brainy sphere, right? Like, you know, blogs like Michael Abbott's, uh, the defunct um, hit self-destruct that Duncan Fife used to write. Yep. And I think there's this problem where you've got you've got a lot of 
you know, smart, talented people trying to think of something interesting and incisive to say three times a week on top of other work they're trying to do. And I think it burns people out faster than they otherwise would. Yeah. Um, it also leads to people's quality, you know, internal quality monitor um, getting out of calibration. And I think the the real strength of magazines and websites wasn't just that you know that they paid, uh, but it was that you didn't have to be thinking of something fascinating to say every twenty minutes. Nope. Um, and now that's where we are, and so it's much harder to even writers you like. It's much harder to find something interesting that they're saying. Um, I think if writers were freer to choose when they really wanted to engage in a topic, um, we'd all be a lot happier. Yeah. But as it is, everyone's just generating content because, well, we think of it as content. Yeah, and this is especially a problem for those larger news blogs that pay for traffic and say if they had so many posts up a day, which I think is a terrible way to do anything. Um, and the New York Times doesn't pay based on the post. doesn't pay based on how many articles you generate. Um, if there's nothing coming out of the Pentagon that day, you have to write a story saying nothing's coming out of the Pentagon that day. That's not the way it works. Uh, and I think that because of the economics of the Internet, the requirement of constant, constant traffic causes a lot of problems um, for uh, blogs that focus on that. But, you know, I think and we're, also, we're also seeing the return of the feature story, which had kind of been gone for a long time. And this is because uh, G- 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 GamePro has brought features back to print in a big way uh, here in the U.S., uh, Edge has never stopped doing features, but in the U.S., GamePro has brought features back. Uh, when John Davison left, I was kind of surprised and disappointed because he's done a great job reviving that magazine and making it something you almost have to buy, uh, GamePro. So good for you, John, and I think it's because of bringing features back. Uh, Ryan Scott over at GameSpy is doing the same thing, making heavy, heavy on features and columns. And he's given me a break uh, there, which is excellent, and a lot of other good writers' uh, breaks, because he thinks this is a way to set the site apart. Um, and I think that's that long-form writing, I think, is on its way back, uh, especially since people don't read magazines anymore, they don't read print anymore. They actually do read long articles online now. I think internet reading habits have gotten to the point where people are willing to invest the time in reading a four- to five-page article online. They weren't there four or five years ago when people preferred to do that in print or in the newspaper. I think reading habits have gotten to the point where we can actually have that sort of thing now. Um, well, one thing I, I want to bring up there, um, have you seen uh, the new EGM? I have not. Okay, because that's... I mean, I think that's a, that's a really interesting effort there. Um, but, I mean, I, I'm curious if that's going to be a a long-term trend is, is what they've done is they've created very much the magazine reading experience um, on a website. Um, it goes, you know, you, go, you open your browser, or I, I imagine it almost has to work with iPad, mm-hmm. um, but you open it up and it's like you're looking at a magazine. Across, right. you know, and it's got the fold in the middle, um, and you turn the pages. Um, it's all very beautiful production values. Uh, it's, an incredibly, uh, it's an incredibly readable format. Um, you know, I mean, I I just wonder whether the, whether or not that's going to take off because one thing I've really come to appreciate about print, um, and I see this every time a new kill screen comes out, is that you know readability is so important. I'm so much more likely to read and enjoy a long form feature if it's laid out in an easy and handsome fashion. Yeah. 
And I think, I mean, the Internet has a long way to go as far as layout is concerned. Well, we both, we both work for GameShark. <laughs> yes, well, Bill, fix it. Damn you. Um, the Form Spring question. How do you get into 4X games, such as Sins or Galsiv 2? Keep in mind, I am a newcomer to the genre. Have never played a turn-based game before. Tech trees, economic stuff, military, diplomacy, all look so overcomplicated. There's no idea what to do each turn. So how do you get people into a 4X game? See, I, you and I grew up with 4X games, so it's kind of in our blood. Yeah. So it's an interesting question, how do you get people into them? Because um, it's something that, it's when you're raised with a genre, you see a genre from its beginning to its end, hopefully not its end, but beginning to its middle. Um, it's easy to forget that some people have to start afresh, and 4X games have gotten a lot more complicated, um, a lot more complex since the early days of Master for Ryan in civilization. Uh, so you have any advice for a newcomer who wants to get into 4X games? Um, everybody take a shot. Civ. Yep. Um, I mean, there's simply, there's no way around. Like, that's, not only is it, you know, the best, um, you know, 4X, you know, ever made, uh, but it's also probably the most accessible. Um, so you're just you're simply not going to do much better. And it, you know, honestly, if you if you don't enjoy Civ, if you don't enjoy um, you know building Life. cities, expanding, then you know. Well, a bit for, new, like for, for a newcomer, the great thing about Civ Four, and hopefully Civ Five, we'll see that on the first two difficulty levels of Civilization, the AI pretty much does nothing. It'll build some cities, but it won't harass you. Um, it'll build an empire on its own. It'll be like a peaceful builder, and you can decide when you want to learn war which is the hardest thing to master in Civilization for, is how many troops do you need and where do you need them? Um, and so you can learn the tech tree and you can learn the religion. And it's bit by bit. Um, and I think I'll, a lot of uh, people who are learning 4X want to learn everything right away. And really that's a terrible way to learn anything, yep. uh, especially complicated uh, games that have so much going on economically, militarily, and research-wise. You want a game that will teach... Uh, that will teach you one thing at a time or two things at a time, which is why when people want to play Europa Universalis, I always say start with France because you don't have to worry about money. Start with France in 1492. You don't have to worry about money and you don't have to worry about creating an empire quite yet. That'll come, but there's no rush. And it's France, it's not your priority anyway. So you'll learn other things first. Uh, Civilization four. Start on not the lowest difficulty level because then you'll get a really bad idea of research because you'll be researching the rifle when the enemies are researching stoneware. You don't want that. You want to have it be interesting enough, challenging enough to be interesting uh, tech-wise. But you won't have to worry about the the enemy coming after you. You get to pick your enemy. So you can learn uh, fighting when you want to learn fighting. Um, and really that's the best way to, do, to take a 4X game is bit by bit. Find a game that will let you focus on one system at a time. Many tutorials suck at this. You really have to get into the game and dial down the difficulty and, you know, read, read about them, uh, the bonuses. And you know what? We're on the internet. And the best internet communities have newbie guides that are actually quite good that will teach you what's important right then. You don't want a pure walkthrough. You don't want a game that's going to say, do this, do this, do this. You don't want a build order for a 4X game. 
What you want is somebody who will teach you what is important at that moment. What do you have to be looking at? What is it, which numbers are important? And I think Civilization 4 does a great job of that. Now in a month's time, we'll have Civilization 5, and we'll see if it's even close to... Um, uh, the masterpiece uh, that Civ 4 was. But yeah, I mean, that's what you want to do. Find a game that is will leave you alone for a bit. And Civ 4, for the first, the two lowest difficulty levels, will leave you alone uh, while you learn the system. Uh, is Civ Rev um, a good starter? Yes. I would, well, the thing is, Civ Rev, it's not a bad starter. It's 4X, but the world is so small. Uh, the tech trees really aren't that interesting because you can win and not discover half the tech tree. So you're going to learn that much. It's a very, I don't want to say dumbed down, because dumbed down is a bad way of saying it. It's a very simplified version of Civ. Uh, Diplomacy is very basic. It's, you know, war and peace. You like me or you hate me. You can tell it's a Sid Meier design, because it, lo- it plays a lot like the original Civilization. Okay. Uh, it, it really even feels like the original Civilization. Um, but Civ Rev isn't a bad way to start. If you have an iPhone, uh, it's a great way to go. Apparently, the iPhone app for Civ Rev is quite good. So, wait, though, are there seriously no other starter RTSs that we can recommend? Like, oh, uh, for, for 4Xs, yeah. I mean, we could start. We could recommend. Sorry, yeah, 4Xs. Sorry. Well, it's a very sparse genre. Let's be honest here. How many are there? Yeah, not many. Not many good ones. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not going to recommend Elemental. Sorry, sorry, Brad. Not going to recommend Elemental. Um, there are I'm starting. No, absolutely. No, not. God, no. Um, I can't imagine starting with Elemental. Um, Master of Orion two, if you can find it, I suppose. Yeah, but then but, you got to get over the graphics hurdle. Yeah, it's a it's a hideous, hideous game uh, at the moment. Um, but I mean, it's and I really don't think it matters which game it is. It helps if it's a good game. But if you're just trying to learn, you know, just basics of how do I pay attention to what. Um, Something like Civilization, or even Gal- Gal- Civ 2 isn't too bad. Gal- Civ 2 is actually quite a good uh, 4X game. Um, you'll often find yourself backing into victory. There seems to be a Stardock pattern, because it's happened to me in Elemental a few times, where things are going along and you're moving forward, all of a sudden you realize you win, uh, because you've made all these allies and somebody gets rubbed out. Hey, diplomatic victory! Uh, congrats. I didn't want a diplomatic victory, but it happens. Galaxy 2 is actually, it's, it has some interface issues, and it's got a lot of numbers, and the research is a bit of a bear there, uh, especially because it has all this shipbuilding. Um, but if you're interested in science fiction, you really couldn't do, you, you could do a lot worse than Galaxy 2. Um, uh, since this questioner didn't leave his or her name, mentioned sins in Galaxy 2, um, I'm assuming it's a sci-fi interest. If I was to pick one of them, I think Sins of the Solar Empire is a better game, but it's an RTS and demands more of your attention. Galaxy 2 is turn-based, um, and you can figure things out as you go. On the next question, also from Former Spring, ah, Elemental. Elemental had extensive gamer participation in the beta, yet I don't recall them sounding any the game's not ready warnings. What were they playing in the days immediately preceding their release? Were they hoping for a miracle? That's a good question. I have heard rumors that um, the beta was actually more limited for a long time than the full version. Yeah. Um, so beta, so beta players were exposed to a certain mode of Elemental, but they were not exposed to every aspect of it. 
Yeah, when we think of beta, public beta testing, there's often this impression that they get the full game, and it's always the most up-to-date version. Often it is not the full game, and usually the version the public beta people are playing is a couple of versions behind the final version. And to be honest, I did hear games not ready warnings. Um, I'm sure a lot of the beta testers signed NDAs, and I should not have been fed all this information. I even uh, answered a form of spring question, said, I've been hearing bad things to Elemental. I was called out on it, rightfully so. I should not have said I'd heard bad things to Elemental. That's a was bad form by me. I should have waited until I'd seen the game and not reported unconfirmed information. However, I had heard uh, that Elemental was not in ready state. A lot of people who were in the beta, acquaintances, either acquaintances of mine or readers, uh, were reporting that, you know, there were some serious issues. Um, but the game did get shipped out. Um, what were they playing immediately before release? They were playing probably a beta that was not the final version, but close to the final version. Were they hoping for a miracle? No. I think there's actually a good story in testing, and it's a feature story I want to write. I don't think, and I'm, I'm pitching this uh, to an editor, and if he doesn't bite, I'll be pitching it to other editors. I don't think gamers really understand how testing is done. Don't understand the, the role of quality assurance or the role of a public beta or why developers choose one over the other. Uh, Stardock is in a very different position than, for example, Blizzard. And the fact is, once you're in a beta, uh, often a lot of stuff is hard-coded by the time you get in there. You might get in there and think, this is a stupid design decision. You have to redo the, the tech tree. But that's set. That can't be fixed. That's done. So the beta is focusing on other smaller issues. So... Um, We'll have next week's show is all about Elemental, so we'll. I don't want to. Brad Wardell, uh, the CEO of Stardock and the lead designer on Elemental, uh, will be a guest, but we don't want to nag him just about the technical problems because I think there's more interesting stuff going on than Elemental's technical issues. Uh, but it's certainly a question about that I, I'd like to know an answer to in general. What do what do developers know and when do they know it? Well, here's a question for you, Rob. Mm-hmm. Could a strategy game survive as in be fun? Based purely on a, as a logistics simulator. Ah, uh, um, oh, it could absolutely be fun, uh, but you know, not fun for everyone. I'm certain. Yeah, this is a topic we've actually thought about doing for an entire show, right? Yeah, I'm still I'm still in there pitching it, man. Yeah, I th- I think if it's an interesting idea, the idea of logistics and games. So the follow up on this is, you know, have any strategy games modeled logistics well? Uh, or which one has done it best? Which one has done it best? Or war games, even? Well, this is strategy games. The war games is a subset. So, what games have modeled logistics well for you? Um, well, again, I, you know, I have to go to um, Aegeus games uh, mm-hmm. right away. Um, because, you know, Aegeus system models, um, you know, Aegeus games don't actually have a tremendous amount of interest in what actually happens on the day of battle. Okay, so I mean that's you know it's it's very much a system where the battle's results are almost foreordained based on who's going to be in command, who's you know exhausted and who's not, who's got who's better supplied and equipped, mm-hmm. um, and all these are logistical questions. And Aegeid really makes its games about the art of managing an army operating in a theater. Yep. Um, <coughs> and so every every question in logistic, every question in an Aegeid game isn't about tactics, it's about logistics. You know, a flank march might look great, uh, but are your troops going to be supplied when they get there? Um, 
so and uh, and the Geos games make it a lot of fun to assemble these little army groups and send them scattering around the map and try to bring them together, um, you know, for for the major battles. Um, so I mean, the Geos, you know, the first person I'd point to there, I think, um, you know, back in the day, the Operational Art of War did a pretty decent job of, um, you know, making logistics a feature of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, if you kept your units together, if you if you fought um, in an organized fashion, um, you, you had a lot better results than you did otherwise. I mean, you know, remember, um, you know, what what is it? Montgomery, uh, w- w- you know, would get blasted for, um, you know, doing what he called tidying up the battlefield, right? Where he wouldn't he wouldn't take it t- seize the advantage. Um, he'd spend you know maybe too much time dragging his feet. But also, what he's doing in that time is getting things reorganized, getting his forces put back together. And a good commander actually has to do that. And it's very easy to, you know, look at look at commanders that we generally think of as slow and think, well, you know, they're just they're they're terrible. They're not aggressive. Mm-hmm. Games like uh, the Operational of War, Aegeus games, they make very clear the cost of moving troops um, haphazardly and not thinking about issues like supply lines. Yep. Yeah, those are the games that immediately come to mind too at the Aegean games. And yeah, the Operation Art of War, uh, which has a big update coming out. Rise of Nations believe. did something though too, right? Rise of Nations sort of. I mean, you had to have a supply train. Uh, for an RTS, you had to have a supply train if you're in enemy territory. If you had to have a supply train in enemy territory, you would have attrition. Uh, so that's uh, certainly an issue. I mean, even uh, Hearts of Iron 3 uh, isn't too bad with logistics. You have to have troops supplied, but also the headquarters have to be in the right place. And if you move your troops too far away from your headquarters, uh, they don't get be enforced, uh, they don't get their orders quick enough, uh, and there are some serious problems there. Um, of course, if you use the auto-deploy version, then it always deploys troops too far away from your headquarters, so that doesn't work out quite so well. So you have to manually do it, uh, which isn't too bad, because that's, that's what you're supposed to be doing anyway. Uh, so yeah, Hearts of Iron 3 does a decent job of modeling some of it, but really, yeah, the Aegean games are all about fighting the battle in the right place at the right time with the right guys, and making sure they're fed. Uh, when they're there, uh, you'll, if a supply train gets lost, a supply train will slow down your army. But if it gets lost, you're toast. Uh, next question, and this uh, I think will be the last one. Um, we've, I have a bunch of others, but and I'll save them for later. Show I'll answer them in the form spring publicly. Have you ever thought about getting into the development side of gaming? Uh, probably not. I mean, that's, I'm not qualified to be the development side of gaming. How's that? I'm completely, totally unqualified to be the development side of gaming. Yeah, I... You know, the, the thing is, you know, when I was, when I was much, much younger, um, I, I thought about, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to make games? Um, and then I sat down to try to learn coding. Yep. And, I mean, I, like, there are a few things. I, like, I'd rather do data entry um, <laughs> than... Um, so I mean that's that's a huge obstacle, and I lack I lack artistic talent. Right. Um, so there's another you know track in the game industry that really isn't open to me. So I mean like I think every I think anyone who writes about games seriously, oh of course you're you're thinking you do armchair design exercises all the time. We do sure. Well, you have as a critic, you almost have to. Yeah. Um, but. I don't for a moment think that I have the, school, the skills to put that into practice. Right. It's, um, I mean, I'm qualified to do it to write, pretty much. 
uh, and maybe PR, maybe marketing, because I'm a nice guy. People seem to like me. Most people seem to like me. Uh, and I, 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 there are lots of writers who've gone into the PR side, the community management side, uh, the production side, uh, absolutely. But um, it's very few. I mean, I, I look at you know, Jeff Green, who is one of the smartest guys I know, uh, one of the best writers I know, and, and who's done this so long, it's amazing he's not more cynical. Um, he goes to EA, and there's a huge company, and they can't find really a place for him. If EA can't find a place for Jeff Green, uh, no one's going to find a place for me. Uh, it's pretty much what it comes down to. It is The adjustment isn't easy, and I think a lot of people move into it and expect the money's certainly better. Uh, I think they expect that the skills translate over naturally, and I guess some of them do. I could probably, you know, I could do, I could write a press release. Uh, Mario Kroll, the former uh, head of Wargamer, he does PR now for a bunch of he did for a bunch of places in his career. Now he's with Calypso. Uh, Jason Bergman used to write, and now he does stuff for Bethesda after some time at 2K. Uh, much of the one-up, many of the one-up people ended up in the produ- production side. Sean Elliott, Sean Malloy, uh, and Guy Kroll, he's a consultant. So you know, there are people who do make the shift, uh, and some very, very good people. Uh, but I'm not sure where I would fit in that. I'm not, I mean, if, if I were to stay in Maryland, and if someone were to hire some studio startup wanted to hire me, what would they hire me to do? I, I, I could write a manual. If Tom Chick can write a manual, I can freaking write a manual. That's pretty much it. Well, you know, I mean, there's there's one caveat. You know, I have to attach to my answer. I, I remember, um, you know, when the Exodus was happening at One Up, and I think it was like one of the last GFW radios. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got You've got Sean Malloy and Sean Elliott talking about um, how how every every games journalist has that list. You know, you don't you don't get into the work thinking, well, I want I want to make the jump. But everyone has that list that if somebody ever said, you know, do you want to come work for us? Yep. You simply do not refuse. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I'd be yeah. lying if I said there there isn't a very short list of studios that if they were like, you know, we really like what you do and we think we could find a place for you in our company that, you know, you could really use your talents. Sure. Um, then I'm gone. You know, I mean, like, let's face it. This I'll accept that. Journalism pays shit. Um, nope. So, I mean, it's it's not hard to lure someone away from it. Um, no, it isn't. So I love doing it. So, I mean, you know, there, there are places you fantasize about working, about working at and if they ever come knocking, you know, you take the offer and yep. you try to make it work. But, do I think about it in terms of like I want to actively ser- seek employment in that in that field? Absolutely not, and I know enough about about it to know that in a lot of ways, game development sucks even worse than our our job. Yeah. So, and the minute I start thinking about wow, I want to get a job in development, is the minute I become a terrible critic. Because uh, if I start thinking about a way to get out of here so I can get a job at EA, uh, that means I'm going to start doing things EA would want to look for, assuming I knew what they wanted to look for. Yeah. And, and, and to his credit, and that's one bad. Reasons, I think one of the reasons things didn't work so well for uh, Jeff Green at EA is that I don't think it, it, it never seemed like Jeff, you know, had that had that ability to become a company man, um, and that's that's what EA needs. But Jeff's Jeff's an outspoken writer. 
yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure the issue. I mean, he wrote a long blog post about it, and uh, we hope to have Jeff on the podcast uh, later this month because uh, he's a great guy and he's always been very good to me. Um, we want to welcome him back to Games Journalism since he reviewed StarCraft II for GamePro. Uh, good going, Jeff. Welcome back. Uh, but yeah, a Games development is yeah i probably i probably have a short list of people i'm not going to say of studios i'd work for there are people i'd work with how's that there are there are people i would work with uh no matter what studio they were at and some people i would probably not work with um even if they were at a great studio uh because you know i know enough I, i hear things i know who to work for and who not to uh but it's uh yeah i think that's probably the way it is it it's because it does pay shit, uh, if I was to get an offer, I could not, I could not legitimately say no, um, because of my family and my other needs, um, unless, you know, there's a really great offer on the journalism side. Hey, guess what? There really isn't in the freelancing business. But it's also important to, to just to remind people, you know, I don't think anybody really seriously contemplates, like, I'm going to be a games journalist. Like, you sort of fall into this, and there's probably some reasons you do, you know, or or just freelance writing in general. Yep. Um, there's reasons you start working for yourself and dealing with an inconsistent and often terrifying line of work, rather than working nine to five. Yep. Um, that's something about you, and you got to come to terms with that. For yourself. Both good and ill. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, you got you got to really question yep. whether or not you're ever going to be that guy. Yep. Yeah, and um, it's. We are where we are. Um, I know that, I mean, there are people who've done this for a very long time and done a very good job at it, Mr. Tom Chick for one, uh, and some people who have been at this for a long time and are very bad at it. Um, but I do not want a job. Uh, I, have, I'm not, I have not considered a job in game development seriously. How's that? I have not, I've never applied for one. I've had ads sent to me, but I've never applied for a job. Because what can I honestly say? Hell, I've got a PhD in political science I'm not using. Uh, so, that's this week's show. I did not get into all of your questions. We do want to keep these shows to a relatively tight... Well, this was going to be an hour and 15 minutes. Haha. One of our longer shows. Uh, but we appreciated all of the questions you got. I appreciate everybody sending them in. Uh, as I said, next week is our elemental show. It will also be a longer show. We hope to have a very large panel for that, including Mr. Brad Wardell, the CEO of Stardock, for at least the first half of the show. Um, and then we're probably going to move on and talk about elemental. My review of elemental should be up, uh, probably, the same day this podcast goes up or the day after, it will be linked uh, on the blog and on my Twitter feed. And I think that's all we have to say. Rob, anything to finish with? Uh, no, I think that's just about covers it. Except I will say that this was a lot of fun. And uh, maybe we should make the listener question show a bit more of a regular feature here. Every 40 episodes is just long enough. But maybe we make it every 20. How's that? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Uh, thanks for your questions, everyone. And if I didn't get to them, uh, it's. Be- I'm sorry. Uh, the ones in the form spring, I will be answering on the form spring, and those will be posted on my Twitter feed. Uh, say good night, everyone. Good night. Night all. <laughs>